to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 2, as we follow along with today's lesson. Now, as they were going into the temple, there was a certain man who was lame from his mother's womb. And he was carried daily and laid there at the gate of the temple, which was called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Now, even to the present day, you go to the Middle East And you will find beggars, people who have physical disabilities. uh, That are there by the Damascus Gate, especially by St. Stephen's Gate, who are begging for money from the people who enter into the gates of the city of the old city of Jerusalem. This man was carried each day to this spot at the temple where he begged people for money who were going in to worship. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for an alms, for some money. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look at us. And so he gave heed unto them. He was expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, And immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So here's a man about 40 years of age, never been able to walk. He is a common sight to the people in Jerusalem because daily he is there at the gate begging. And Peter speaks to this man the word of faith. He said to him, what I have I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Jesus had said to the disciples, and whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Here now they are beginning to exercise the power of the name of Jesus Christ. 
God has given him a name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. We know that in the New Testament, the name of Jesus was used in the exercising of the demonic powers. Uh, The seven sons of Sceva, as we will find later on in the book of Acts, were watching the apostles casting out these evil spirits in the name of Jesus. And so they got hold of a, a man who was possessed by evil spirits. And they said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. Come out of this man. And the spirits said, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but who are you? And... Uh, They turned on these seven fellows and ripped their clothes off and they fled for their lives. But it only shows that the name of Jesus was used in the exercising of the evil spirits. The name of Jesus was used in the healing of those people who were in need of healing. And so in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I believe that it took a great deal of faith for Peter to take the man by the right hand and lift him to his feet. Can you imagine yourself doing such a thing? What do you suppose was going through Peter's mind? I know what would be going through my mind. I hope this guy stands. (laughs) I hope he doesn't collapse. You know, I'll be accused of cruelty to the disabled if this guy should collapse. I believe that as the New Testament teaches in 1 Corinthians 12, that there is a special gift of faith that God gives to us at certain times in certain situations. It isn't something that we have at all times, but there are certain times when God just sort of assures our hearts that he's going to do a work and he gives us special faith where we boldly step out on that strong impression that comes to us by the Spirit. Several years ago, when we were worshiping a block away in the little chapel, after a Sunday morning service, some young people wheeled their grandfather up to the front where I was standing And they asked me if I would pray for their grandfather. And I had just been reading the third chapter of Acts and reading about Peter speaking the word of faith in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, and then lifting him to his feet. So I prayed for this grandfather of theirs sitting in the wheelchair. And as I was praying... 
I got this strong impression. Speak the word of faith and lift him up. Uh, uh, uh. But it was so strong. I thought, okay, well, here goes. So when I was through praying, I said to the man, stand up and walk. And I lifted the man out of the wheelchair and set him on his feet. And he began to walk. He walked up the aisle of the church and he sort of trotted back and the grandkids were doing cartwheels practically. I mean, they were so excited. They said, we wanted you to pray for his cold. They said, he hasn't walked in five years, you know. And, and of course, we all rejoice in the power of the Lord. The following Wednesday night, I was in Tucson, Arizona. And it was Thanksgiving Eve. I was invited to speak there at a church. And so after service, a man came up, his wife was in a wheelchair, and he explained that she had had a stroke, and he asked me to pray for her that God would heal her. Beautiful Christian couple. And I prayed for her that God would heal her, and I patted her on the shoulder, and I said, The Lord bless you, we'll we'll continue to pray. We know that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. And he wheeled her out of the church. And my son, who was with me that Sunday morning, turned to me and said, Dad, how come you didn't lift her out of the chair like you did that guy last Sunday morning? And I said, because I didn't have the faith. God didn't give to me the faith to do it. So I think that there are times that it's just very strong. It's not all the time. I don't make a practice of lifting people out of wheelchairs. In fact, that's the only time I've ever done it. And I, in the natural, I would be very <laughs> frightened to do it. But yet... I believe that this is, again, one of the characteristics of the man that God uses. It's a man who dares to step out in faith. A man of faith. Now, I'm sure much to Peter's relief, he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking Leaping, praising God. You can imagine. He's never walked in his life before. He's about 40 years old. And and suddenly he has the capacity. And so he's not just walking, he's jumping too. So excited over this miracle that has happened. And all of the people saw him walking and leaping, praising God. 
And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Now again, back in the last chapter, many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and the people were filled with wonder and amazement at that which happened unto this man. And the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, and all of the people came running together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, and they were greatly wondering. So here's a marvelous thing. People don't understand it, but it, the crowd is just gathering together quickly because it, it's just, you know, it's just that buzz and it goes through the whole place. And thousands of people come crowding into Solomon's porch. Uh, to see what's happening, what's going on. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we have made this man to walk? Notice that the inference here is that the people were looking at Peter and John as though they were some kind of special holy instruments. They were relating the miracle to Peter and John. Now, later on in the book of Acts, as Paul is in Lystra, and as he is preaching... There is a lame man there about 40 years old and Paul perceives that this man has faith to be healed and he said, brother, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Stand up. And the fellow stood up and the people said, the gods have come down. Well, that's pretty much the reaction and the response of the people here. They, they are looking at like, ooh, you must be very holy or very close to God. And and they are beginning to look at them in awe, almost idolizing. There is an incumbent danger to exercising any of the gifts of the Spirit. And that is, whenever God is working in a special way through an individual, people are very prone to exalt the individual, to begin to look at that person as though he is closer to God than anyone else. And, and there comes almost a aura of, of wonder when people get around those people that God uses. And they they develop foolish little things like wanting to come up and just touch them, you know. I touched Billy Graham, you know. And, and, and we are so prone to exalt the instrument. Now, the danger for the person who is exercising those gifts of the Spirit, the danger is that they start sometimes receiving the adulation 
the admiration from the crowd. And the moment you begin to receive the credit or the you begin to accept the adulation, your ministry is in a very precarious position. Notice how Peter immediately disassociates himself from the miracle. He corrects them immediately. Why look ye on us as though we, through our own power or holiness, have made this man to walk? We didn't have anything to do with this. Why do you look at us? And then he begins to explain the miracle that they saw. The men that God uses are men who are not seeking glory or fame for themselves. They are men who have come to the cross in their own lives. As Paul the Apostle, I am crucified with Christ And nevertheless, I live, and yet not I, but it's Christ who is living in me. So the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, and when Christ who is our life shall appear. And and they are men who aren't looking for fame. They're not looking for glory. They're not attracting people to themselves, nor are they desiring to attract people to themselves. They are men who are wanting to bring glory unto God's Son. And that is their chief and preeminent desire. Just to bring men to Jesus. Not to themselves, but to Jesus. And so Peter immediately points them away from himself and he points them to God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob The God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Uh, John in his gospel shows the effort that Pilate made to release Jesus. John points out that Pilate did not want to condemn Jesus and that he sought his best to to release Jesus, but they pressured and they badgered him until he was forced to release Jesus to them to be crucified but he was reluctant to do so and ultimately washed his hands, said, look, I I wash my hands of this whole thing. I'm innocent. See ye to it. So here Peter reminds them that God has now glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You denied the Holy One and the just, and you desired a murderer to be granted unto you. 
And so he's showing them how horrible. Here is Jesus. He's holy. He's just. And, and you rejected him. You wanted a murderer to be delivered. And you killed the prince of life. That, that sounds like a real oxymoron, doesn't it? You killed the prince of life. Whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now, as we said before, the resurrection of Christ was the gospel that was preached by the apostles. Here it is. You killed him. God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses. We have seen him. And so again, bearing witness of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the heart of the gospel. Without the resurrection, you have no gospel. As Paul said, if Christ is not risen, then we are still in our sins. And we are of all people most miserable. So the witness of the resurrection of Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you know. So men of faith, Peter's declaring it. It's through his name and faith in his name, this man is standing here whole. But notice he goes on to say, Yes, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter is not only saying it's through faith and faith is in his name. He doesn't stop there because people would say, Oh, a great man of faith. Aren't you wonderful? Oh, I wish I had the faith that you had. You see, they would be exalting him for his faith. So Peter isn't willing to take credit for the faith. He said, it is the faith which is by him. So he is the author and the finisher of our faith, according to Hebrews. Paul tells us that God has given to every man a measure of faith. And then in the Corinthian epistle, as he lists the gifts of the Spirit, he lists that gift of faith. So Peter is saying this is an exercise of a gift of God. The Lord gave me the faith. I don't go around raising lame people to their feet. But the Lord gave me the faith. It is the faith which is by him that this man has this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So that complete turning them over to Jesus Christ and away from himself, so important in any ministry that you might exercise for the Lord. Now Peter is sort of, um, he, he's, he's laid a heavy, heavy trip on them you denied the Holy One and the just and Pilate was determined to let him go, but you desired a murder. I mean, this is heavy accusations. 
So Paul says, and now brethren, I know that through ignorance you did it. You were ignorant of the truth. I, I know that. And as did also your rulers, but those things which God before showed by the mouth of all of his prophets that the Messiah should suffer, he has fulfilled. Now, you remember in the study last week, Peter said, you by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God with your wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now when he talks to them again about the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, he makes reference to all that the prophets spoke of how the Messiah would have to suffer, Jesus fulfilled. Now as you read Isaiah 53, and as you read Psalm 22, and as you read these other passages of Scripture that speak of the suffering of the Messiah, you wonder how is it that the Jews, knowing the scriptures as they did, didn't realize that the Messiah was to suffer when it is so plainly prophesied in the word? How is it that they didn't recognize that this had to happen to the Messiah? What they usually did is spiritualize the scriptures that had to do with the suffering and they only accepted as literal the scriptures that spoke of his glorious reign, of the kingdom, of his sitting upon the throne, and, and, and that they accepted as literal, but they spiritualized the other prophecies that dealt with his suffering and with his death with his being despised and rejected. They, they spiritualize those scriptures. That's why it's dangerous to spiritualize scriptures because you can take away the meaning through spiritualizing scriptures. I try not to spiritualize. There, there are some who, that, you know, they make everything mean something. And uh, you can lose the real meaning of a passage by spiritualizing the passage. That's what they did with the passages that dealt with the suffering of the Messiah. And thus, through ignorance, they participated in the very things that were prophesied that should happen to the Messiah. So those things which God had shown before by the mouth of his prophets that the Messiah should suffer, he has so fulfilled. So, repent. Now, in the second chapter, when Peter had finished his message and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Seeing we've crucified the Lord of glory. Peter said, repent, change. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Oh, I love that word, blotted out, especially when it refers to my sins. Isn't it glorious? Blotted out. Made not to exist. Your sins can be blotted out. You don't need to carry the guilt 
of your past. You don't need to go around condemned. God will blot out that past. All of that past, God will blot out. That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Oh, isn't it a glorious, refreshing thing to just be in the Lord's presence? You know, I've come into services sometimes uh, physically sort of weary. Uh, But by the time the services are over, I feel such strength and just refreshed from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus, the Messiah, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So he makes reference to the scriptures that told of the suffering of the Messiah, but then he is now making reference to the scriptures that tell of the glorious reign of the Messiah. But he must be in heaven, he must be received into heaven until the time when God is going to restore all things. That is, when God is again going to deal with the nation of Israel. And God is again going to make them his primary focus of work upon the earth. We currently are living in a time gap that is called the times of the Gentiles. And this times of the Gentiles basically began with the death of Zedekiah, the last king of Israel, and the Babylonian captivity. And from the time of the Babylonian captivity of of the nation of Israel and so forth, uh, back in uh, the uh, round 600 B.C., From that time until now has been known in the scriptures as the times of the Gentiles. Now Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trodden under the foot of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This prophecy seems to be coming close to a fulfillment It would appear that in 1967 when the Jews came in and they uh, took uh, Jerusalem again, that uh, the times of the Gentiles were pretty much over because Jerusalem was then under Jewish control. Uh, But I believe that The times of the Gentiles will not be over until the church is taken out. And then we'll begin once more God's dealing with the nation of Israel for God has seven years that he is yet to deal with them. Uh, The final seven years of God's dealing with the nation of Israel and the restitution of all things. The prophet Ezekiel 
In chapters 36 and 37, 38, uh, 39, he speaks of these times. In chapter 40, the latter portion of the book of Ezekiel deals with these times when God is going to restore the nation of Israel to its prominent place that God once had placed it in as God's chosen people and uh, God working among them. That's, that's yet to come. And all of the prophets prophesied of, of this time when the restoration of the nation of Israel would take place. There are those who take this scripture, the final restitution of all things, and they have the doctrine of what they call final restitution, and they say that ultimately, in the end, everybody is going to be saved. Even Satan is going to come and be converted, and, and you know, heaven will, everybody will get there, you know, by some way or other. You'll, you'll all make it, you know, the final restitution of everything. The Bible does not teach that, because... Uh, and this scripture, and this is the passage they use, but this doesn't teach it because he points out that these are the things that were spoken, God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. And so if you go back and you get the, the gist of the prophecies from the beginning, it, they all deal with God's taking back again the nation of Israel. Look at Hosea the prophet. You remember this story. God said, marry this gal, and he did, and, and she became unfaithful, went out and uh, committed adultery and so forth, and, and went to the bottom. And God said, now go get her and, and, and wash her up and, and take her back as your wife again. And then he preached to, to them of, of God's relationship with Israel, how God had chosen Israel, but they had turned from God. And uh, they uh, had committed spiritual fornication and adultery, and yet how God is going to take them back as his people again. And, and throughout the scriptures, over and over, the prophets tell of this work of God among the nation of Israel uh, in the last days. And so heaven's going to receive Jesus until this happens. At the end of this seven-year period, then Jesus will come again. And he will establish God's kingdom upon the earth. But he's got to be received into heaven until uh, these things are fulfilled. And so we watch with keen interest as uh, there, we have definitely entered into the beginning of this final restitution. Uh, you take Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophecy concerning the mountains of Israel being covered with trees again and all. That has happened and is happening. Uh, the fields bringing forth and uh, the agricultural development, that's happening. Uh, chapter 37, they're becoming a nation once more. That has happened. Uh, then into chapter 38, uh, this has not yet happened, but that's where we are between chapters 37 and 38. And uh, one day you're going to read that uh, Iran and uh, Syria and or, or Turkey and, and Russia and all have joined together Libya with an invasion of Israel. And uh, that will be chapter 38 of Ezekiel. Uh, but uh, we're right, we're in this 
it's begun, but it, it will culminate in the seven years in which the Lord will be dealing very powerfully and directly with the nation of Israel. So these are the things spoken by the prophets. So Moses, he said, truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up among you or unto you of your brethren like unto me, and him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. The prophecy of Moses concerning the Messiah. God will raise up a prophet like unto me, he said, and to him you shall give heed. The Jews today take this prophecy of Moses as one of the reasons for their rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Moses said, the Lord will raise up a prophet like unto me. And they say, Moses was just a man and the Messiah will be just a man. He will not be the son of God. And we reject Jesus as the Messiah because he claimed he was the son of God. That's their argument and their reasoning. But they have difficulty with Isaiah chapter 9 that said unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That one gives them problems. Uh, also Psalm 2, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is that the earlier rabbis at the time of Christ all felt that the Messiah would be the Son of God. In fact, when Jesus was being cross-examined by the high priest, he said, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, you said it. He said, are you then the son of God? Because they equated the Messiah with the son of God because of the prophecies. This is sort of a new invention by the rabbis of late saying, well, you know, he's going to be a man because Moses was a man. When Peter made his confession he said, thou art the Messiah, the son of the living God. Because they believed that the Messiah was to be, and they were correct, he was to be the son of God. Today, with this denial of Jesus, because they said he claimed to be the son of God, it makes a real dilemma for them. And that is why many of them were deceived in believing that this Rabbi Schneerson was the Messiah because he was a man. And if the Messiah is only going to be a man, then how will you know he's the Messiah? How will you recognize him as the Messiah if he's just a man? And they have difficulty with that. But they're stock answer is usually he will lead us in the rebuilding of the temple 
Now, that is rather interesting in light of, according to the prophecy in Daniel, where God had these 77-year periods that he was going to deal with the nation of Israel, of which 69 have already been fulfilled, and the 70th is this seven-year cycle, which is yet to come, which we mentioned earlier. That at the beginning of this final seven-year cycle, the man of sin, the Antichrist, is going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel. And through this covenant, they will rebuild their temple and will begin sacrificing again. And it is in the middle of that seven-year period that he comes and he profanes the new temple. He offers the abomination which will bring on the great tribulation. So it's an interesting thing that today the Jews are ready to accept some man who will come along and help them rebuild their temple. And if the Antichrist makes a covenant and in the covenant there is that agreement for the rebuilding of the temple, they're ready to hail him as their Messiah, their Savior. Now Jesus said, I came in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. Another is going to come in his own name, and him you will receive. It seems like they're perfectly set up for that right now. Because of the prophecy of Moses, there shall come a man, a prophet like unto myself, and him shall you give heed whatsoever things he shall say to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all of the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. It's general, it's laced throughout all of the prophecies. Going back, of course, from the beginning, he said all of the prophets uh, from the beginning. And, And then he comes in since the time of Samuel. This has been the general theme of the prophets concerning the Messiah and concerning the glorious reign of the Messiah. And he said, now you are the children of the prophets and of the covenants which God made with our fathers. You are the Jews. When he said to Abraham, and in thy seed shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. You're the children of Abraham. God promised to Abraham that through his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, Abraham understood that, as did those in the Old Testament, that God had made to Abraham the promise that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. Later, God repeated that promise to David. So, in order to lay claim to the Messiah, you would have to prove that you're a descendant of Abraham 
and a descendant of David. And that is why in the New Testament, when it gives to us the genealogy of Mary, it traces her genealogy back to Abraham to show, and it goes through David, to show that Jesus was a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham, the requirements of the prophecies. Abraham was promised that through his seed. Now Paul in Galatians chapter 3 points out that that is singular in the Hebrew. It's seed as unto one, not seeds as unto many. In other words, the Jewish nation wasn't to be a blessing to all nations. That wasn't the promise. The promise was that there would be one of Abraham's descendants who would bring a blessing to all of the nations. And so here are we tonight blessed because of Jesus Christ who came from the seed of Abraham. So the prophecy is fulfilled. The promise is fulfilled. We are blessed through Jesus. And that was what the promise was. Through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Not just the nation of Israel. The gospel wasn't just for the Jews only. Jews first, but also to the Greeks. And thus, all of the nations of the world blessed through Jesus. But unto you first, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. The glorious blessing that comes to us through Jesus by his turning us away from our iniquities. Now, it is our iniquities that has caused the curse. You see, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There is nothing wrong with the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord was for man's good. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was for their good that God gave that law. And as you go through the laws, you find that they were given by God to protect man. They were to guide men into a good life, a happy life, a, a, a joyful life. That was the purpose of the law. And, and God, as you look at the law today, you realize that he was protecting them and he was protecting the social order. If men will keep the laws of God, and God said, if you will keep all my statutes, then none of the afflictions that came upon the Egyptians will come upon you. There are laws that deal with diet, good diet, that make you healthy. Laws that deal with sanitation, important for good health. The law of the Lord is good. The law of the Lord is perfect. The problem is, men could not keep or would not keep the law of the Lord. We've all come short. We've all sinned. 
Now, God was trying to protect man through his law from destroying himself. I believe that in that tree in the Garden of Eden, there were probably certain chemicals, perhaps viruses, that when it was eaten, began a process of breaking down the cells of the human body. I believe that when God created Adam, he created him a perfect physical specimen. And that there were no aging factors. That Adam was as young physically when he was 120 years old as he was when he was 25. I believe that God created him a perfect physical specimen. I believe that in the eating of that tree, there was something within that fruit that caused the cells to begin to break down and the aging process began when he ate of that fruit and God had commanded him not to eat of it to protect him. And as you look at each of the laws of God, as you look at each of the Ten Commandments, you find that there is a reason and a purpose behind them. They're for our good. They're to protect us from disease, from social chaos. And as man has come to disregard the laws of God as the result of it, we find our world plagued with viruses and diseases and death and suffering and pain and social disorder and chaos. Now, he came to bless us by taking away our iniquities. And how glorious it is to to live not under the curse, but under the blessings of God. It's interesting when they gave the law uh, and, and they instituted the law with the people uh, that they, they, they um, had, when they came into the land, they had some of the priests up on Mount Gerizim and others on Mount Ebal, and, and, and they began to read the curses of the law. And, and there is a, a, a list there in, in the law of, of several scriptures that begin with, cursed is he that, cursed is he that, cursed is he that. And it goes down the list of the curses on those that did not keep the law. And then, uh, in contrast, the blessings of those who would keep the law of the Lord. And uh, again, uh, it, it is just God protecting us and declaring the consequences of certain activities. People don't believe God. They believe that they can do these things and not be hurt or harmed, not suffer as a result. That's wrong. You're being deceived. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And so, 
It's, it's for our good that God has given to us the law. And, and it would be wise to seek to follow and obey the law of the Lord. We'll return with more of our in-depth study of the book of Acts in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the Religious Council. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 3 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who you sent to deliver us from our iniquities. We thank you, Lord, for the new life that we have in him. And Lord, we thank you that not only do you forgive our sins, but you blot out the past and then you receive us as your children. And we can know the joys and the benefits and the blessings of living in fellowship with you. Lord, our hearts long after you. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. Make us, Lord, the instruments you would have us to be. Use our lives, Lord, to accomplish your purposes In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. I am Goliath. (laughs) What's going on? Don't be afraid, we have God on our side. My name is David, and I know all about big, scary giants. I've defeated lions and bears, and God will help me defeat Goliath, too. It's true, and Pastor Chuck wants to tell you all about the story of David and Goliath in his new book, Just for Kids. So come along on a great adventure and discover how God used David to defeat a big, scary giant and learn why David believed that God was big enough even to conquer Goliath. And as a gift, each book contains an audio CD of Pastor Chuck actually reading the story of David and Goliath so your kids can read along. To order your copy, call the word for today at 800-272-WORD or to see a 
sneak preview of the story of David and Goliath, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.